When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFall and I'm back from my holidays and joining me today are our Transfer Market Insiders and pundits extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, Aaron Ramsey joins Eden Hazard and David De Gea as a top-class Premier League star whose contract is running down. We bring you news of interest from Real Madrid as they sniff out a bargain. We take you inside what looks set to be the public execution of Jose Mourinho. We look at why he dodged the expected Ed Woodward bullet and what's next for Manchester United. And... We discuss the fallout from Liverpool versus Manchester City as the newly pragmatic Pep Guardiola puts the brakes on Liverpool's speedy front three. Okay, well, there are a number of Premier League players who are high-profile, top-class and coming to the ends of their contract. That's Eden Hazard, David De Gea and, of course, a player we've already talked about here on the Transfer Window podcast, Aaron Ramsey. Now, Ian, you have some news that the Arsenal player is interesting, a super club. Tell us more. He is indeed, Johnny. Um, And I'm not surprised um, by the fact that Real Madrid have declared uh, their interest in signing Aaron Ramsey uh, for next season. Um, Partly because they have recorded, uh, you know, an interest in him uh, beforehand when the, the initial contract negotiations uh, came to nothing with Arsenal about 18 months ago. Um, uh, I was told uh, on very, very good information that um, Madrid's uh, administrators had contacted Ramsey's agents to say that he had been highly recommended, obviously by his friend and international teammate Gareth Bale, as someone who um, could fit into Real Madrid's system. We know how versatile Ramsey is in terms of the way he plays, the positions he can play. He can play as a 6, an 8, a 10. Uh, And also, um, at Real Madrid, we have to recognise that they're looking for a long-term successor to the brilliant Luka Modric, FIFA's best player um, after the uh, World Cup last summer. So, um, Ramsey, at his age, at the peak of his career, um, is someone I think who could operate in the Liga very effectively. Uh, I think the subtlety and the application um, of his skill, which we saw even in a cameo performance against Fulham last weekend, is something which Real Madrid would see as an advantage to their particular squad. And of course, he's a free agent, which means that FFP is satisfied. The um, Ramsey's own contract uh, expectations could easily be satisfied on the basis there's no transfer fee. Uh, I'm told that one of the reasons that the contract offer has been withdrawn at Arsenal is because Ramsey's representatives, and I believe quite rightly, said that, um, well, you gave Mesut Ozil this incredible uh, upgrade on his contract last January when uh, you lost Alexis Sanchez to Manchester United because you felt that um, it was important to keep your best players. And that Ozil's salary, which we're led to believe is around £400,000 gross, per week. Um, Ramsey at 28, coming up in 29, uh, would like to realise his own potential. And I think you know he's got a right to say, well, look what I've achieved at Arsenal in my 10 years compared to what Ozil's achieved in the time that he's been here. So why shouldn't I be paid equivalent to him? Now, Arsenal clearly are not in the mood to meet that demand or even to even recognise Ramsey's claims to being worth that amount of money. 
Whereas Real Madrid, I think, would be. You've got um, slightly um, less taxation uh, values in Spain if you're an EU national, albeit Brexit will obviously make a difference to that uh, when and if it ever happens. But um, Ramsey himself is a very confident individual, uh, young man who I think uh, has would have no problems going to play uh, in Spain or even anywhere else in Europe for that matter. Um, and so therefore I would see Real Madrid's interest as something which not only would inspire him with regards to what he will do in the future, but also something which he will do see as an as a real, you know, an ambition beyond possibly what he might have expected. I'm certain that there will be English clubs who will be willing to offer Ramsey a very lucrative contract. And remember as well that his value is that he's also a homegrown player. So in that squad of 25, he fills one of those spots um, as well. However, um, if Bale's future long terms at Real Madrid, and you have to say that with the departure of Cristiano Ronaldo to Juventus, then that's more likely than a Ramsey-Bale link-up in the Santiago Bernabeu is much more uh, of a thing than it might have been, say, a year, two years ago when Ronaldo was still there. Look, I think um, I think obviously Aaron Ramsey um, is is in a very um, is in the perfect position as long as he, he doesn't have a serious injury, which is he's one of the best midfielders in the, in the Premier League, um, established record there, also um, established record on in, in international football. He's close to the peak age of his career, um, and he can now uh, assess his suitors um, in terms of the clubs that are interested in him and in terms of the salary packages that are offered to him and pick off um, the the deal that suits him best. And I don't think there'll be any shortage of offers for him. I think what's interesting to note here is um, the damage clubs can do in handing uh, new contracts to players. Um, and it's something that often flies under the radar because there's a sense that, you know, it doesn't, as long as you keep a player at a club, it doesn't matter. Um, because you've secured his future at the club, and that means he's playing. Your star is playing for you, um, and that can only be for the for the benefit of the team. And on the surface, it would look that way, but underneath the surface, as soon as you give one player a contract which is even marginally more than um, than other players in the club, and certainly if it's substantially more than other players in the club, as as Arsenal did with with Meza Ozil, you cause an internal problem because you've reset the, the the market value for the best contract in the club and the players who consider themselves to be on the same level as the players you've had the contract to will then go into negotiations with that as their benchmark. And we see it time and time again. I mean, it's a problem for Manchester United at the moment in that they have uh, Paul Pogba and Alexis Sanchez on big substantial deals, um, which the rest of the team know are superior to theirs. And players like David De Gea are saying, well, I've contributed more to this team. It's my turn for a contract now. I expect to get at least the same terms as those two. I think with Arsenal, it's compounded by the fact that no one actually wanted to sign Mesut Ozil. He, I mean, we talked about this a lot last year. But we, we had um, you know months of reports saying that Manchester United wanted to uh, Josie Mourinho wanted to reunite himself with Ozil by bringing him to Old Trafford. Um, and uh, the idea that he might also go back to Real Madrid or Barcelona. Um, he and his agent placed himself in a weird position in that they essentially said, we only want to go to clubs of that stature. Um, and we're only really interested in those super clubs. And none of those super clubs were interested in, in signing Ozil unsurprisingly, because his, um, his performances haven't been at the level you'd expect for a top player to move to a top club on substantial salary. So Arsenal kind of got bounced into giving him this new contract, as, as Ian says, because they lost Sanchez and it, was a, it seemed a good PR move at the time. But they, they clearly overpaid. There wasn't another suitor um, that Ozil wanted to go to who was offering the same money. And now they now they have the um, the ramifications of that to deal with, which is a player who's arguably been more, more important to them um, over the last few seasons, Aaron Ramsey, has, is essentially off the market to them and is, is going to go. They've withdrawn their contract offer because their offer is so far away from what he expects to get because of the, the pay um, the Germany midfielder has. So, so these things are all 
important and you should always look at these matters when clubs sign players to new contracts because it's not it's not it's never a deal in separation it's never just about that one player it's always about the entire team We've seen that, of course, with Eden Hazard and David De Gea as well, two other players that have uh, issues with regarding their contracts. Ian, how much does it cost a club for a player like that to run down their contract? We saw it with uh, Thibaut Courtois, top, top, top class goalkeeper going for 50-odd million to Real Madrid and then Chelsea having to spend 71 on Kepa as his replacement. So a significant financial loss on that deal. Is that the kind of thing that can really, really cause issues for clubs? Well, there's two aspects to that, Johnny. Uh, um, one is um, the personal one, which is the, the player himself who uh, decides his future and where he wants to play. And in the case of Aiden Hazard, the comments he made uh, to Belgian media uh, in the last 24 hours regarding um, his... Uh, let's just say it's rather, rather romantic. It was quite kind of old style, wasn't it, where he said that... Uh, Sometimes he dreams of, you know, he's dreamt of playing for Real Madrid as a kid. And, you know, sometimes he wakes up thinking he wants to see XQ with Chelsea. But at the same time, should he go? And etc. Look, realistically, let's just cut through the BS there and just say, this is yeah, an old style, come and get me, play to Real Madrid. One which I think he doesn't need, doesn't need to make. There's no um, reason why Real Madrid would not want to send Aiden Hazard. Uh, you've seen the sensational and scintillating form that he's been in already. Uh, after eight games of the Premier League season. Um, we saw at the World Cup where I think you know he had a very good case for being player of the tournament um, ahead of Luka Modric or anyone else uh, in, in the sense that uh, you know his effectiveness, his goals, his, his goal assists, etc. Et Aiden Hazard has a world at his feet. There's no doubt about that. And um, Chelsea are in a situation where he's got a contract in two, 2020, um, although... Um, Comments like this do not make it, let's just say, easy or helpful for for Chelsea to renegotiate that contract. But it's definitely the case that to buy a player to replace Hazard, you're looking at a £200 million spend on transfer fee for someone who's in contract. Then, then looking at a contract spend in terms of salary of around £25 million gross per season. So for a four-year contract, it's costing you an extra 100. So that's 300 million full on. Now, if Chelsea are wise and operate effectively, they will simply put a contract on the table for Aiden Hazard and say, we'll make you the best paid player at our club ever and probably the best paid player in the Premier League at this moment in time, above Pogba and Sanchez, who are on, uh, as Duncan has said in the past, um, equality-type contracts. So, um, then it's down to the player. Does he, you know, his ambition is, does he want to play for Madrid or not? Does he want to spend the rest of his career at Chelsea? He's like Ramsey in that situation. He's younger by a couple of years, but he will want to and should optimise his options with regards to what he does next. And for Chelsea, it makes financial sense to simply say, look, we will overpay you effectively, maybe pay you more than Cristiano Ronaldo's £28.7 million per season at Juventus just to keep you, because then that will only cost us over four years £120-£130 million, rather than spending £300 million on recruiting a player of your calibre, plus £100 million in his contract. But again, the, the random aspect of this, not random, but the, the sort of serendipity is, what does the player want? And my personal and also informed point of view from people around Chelsea and indeed uh, those close Azard is that he would prefer a move to, to Real Madrid and to La Liga and therefore Chelsea will need to I think look very carefully um, at the market and decide who they think they can replace their best player with and how much it's going to cost them um, but the overall scenario remains um, a a difficult one because you have players who effectively decide their own futures anyway. And if Hazard decides he wants to leave, then they will have to sell him. At the same time, Chelsea will have to replace him and it's going to cost more money than they would want that to happen. So it's it's one of those catch-22s of modern football where regardless of what you want as a club, then if the players' wishes are different, then that's what you're going to get. I think, I think in some ways Chelsea are in... Um, a 
good, a relatively good position with Hazard in that he's playing well, he's enjoying his football under Maurizio Sarri, he's central to the team. So those all help them in the sense that Hazard's a guy who likes to enjoy life um, and he likes, likes um, yeah, he's a happy-go-lucky individual. He's, he's kind of different from, different personality and character to the, to the very top players in the world. He's not as driven um, and not as competitive. Um, is always what I hear from the from the people who worked with him and the people who are close to him. So, so him being happy at Chelsea and Chelsea competing at the top of the Premier League as they are at present, um, and him seeing the chance of getting back into the Champions League and um, with Chelsea and competing for that, all aid their case. They're also better in the sense of um, how much can they afford to offer Eden Hazard because there's no question he's the best player at the club. No, there's no argument. He's the most important player. He's the outstanding uh, attacking talent. He's the guy who, who creates or scores the goals. So you've got Cristiano Ronaldo at, at Juventus situation where Ronaldo is paid massively more than the other players, but it was made clear to the other players that this guy is the best player in the world. It's a special case. Don't come to us um, thinking you're going to get substantial pay rises because Cristiano Ronaldo's arrived because that argument doesn't work. It's not like saying Mesut Ozil's getting uh, three times my salary and I'm as important to the team or more important than Mesut Ozil is. So you better pay me the same. You can't run that argument with Ronaldo and you can't run the argument with Hazard. So they can, they can justifiably give him a bigger contract. What would be a concern is that Hazard is not the most consistent player over um, his career. He's, he's had very good seasons and he's had dips. You know, he's only won um, Premier League Player of the Year once. Um, ironically, as um, you know, you, you'll read people saying that uh, Jose Mourinho wasn't a good manager for him. The season he won Premier League Player of the Year was under Mourinho. Um, so you you then have to question how much can we afford to give him because um, we're assuming you, he will sustain this form or get better. They've already offered him. Uh, last season, they offered to make him the best-paid player at the club and substantially uh, improve his contract. He rejected that. Um, I think fundamentally, it'll come down to the player's choice. He's now they've allowed that contract to run down far enough that he sees the one-year left um, uh, hurdle or the one-year left um, traffic light, um, which went. When you get to your left with a player of that caliber, you know the player's going to cash in one way or another. It's a much bigger contract or it's a move away um, at reduced transfer fee. Um, he's also, I think, helped by the problems at Real Madrid at the moment. So Real Madrid are, are suffering. Um, they haven't scored a goal for over 400 minutes um, with Ronaldo. Uh, disappeared to Italy. Uh, the new manager's under pressure. They didn't make any um, high-profile signings uh, beyond a goalkeeper, which doesn't really uh, count as a high-profile signing in the in the Real Madrid world of of uh, glory, glorious attacking football last summer. So the obvious response from Florentino Perez in times like this is to start going after star names and. He knows that Eden Hazard wants to come to the club. Hazard has made that absolutely clear in public on multiple occasions. Um, and at the moment, he would be a very easy sell to the fans because of the way he's playing for Chelsea and has been playing for Belgium. So again, it's all, it's all in Hazard's court. Um, I think Chelsea have to try to retain him and they have to offer a big contract, and then they have to see if they can they can manage to persuade him. But it, it, I don't think it comes down to Chelsea here. It comes down to the player. Duncan, you were talking about David De Gea months ago. What's the latest on that situation? Because I noticed there have been some reports in the press over the last couple of weeks. Well, I mean, as, as we discussed on here, um, I think there's been multiple reports over the last year that he had agreed a new contract or was about to sign a new contract. Um, I've consistently reported that that wasn't the case. Um, I did a did a piece um, uh, for the for the Daily Record, the transfer window column that we do every week in August, um, saying uh, that uh, the offer that Manchester United had made was nowhere near his expectations for the reasons I've just discussed. He's he's saying I've been um, Player of the Year at this club for the last five years. Um, I'm central to performances. 
um, I've established my worth at this team and there are two players who um, have not established their worth at the, this team, one of whom is you know, an internal problem for the manager and the club um, and they're paid substantially more than me. I, I expect my wages, uh, the offer you make to me, to me to match those terms are better than, otherwise I won't be signing a new contract. Um, and he's again in a good position. Um, his, his contract expires at the end of this year. Um, they have an option to extend for a further year, which Manchester United will take up. But he will be at that one year um, traffic light in the summer. Um, and from what I understand, he is prepared to run his contract down to zero if he has to. If uh, Manchester United don't um, deliver what he um, expects, he should he should be offered. And you know, there's um, there are other clubs interested, and um, I think the most obvious candidate at the moment is Paris Saint Germain, who who have been searching for a elite goalkeeper for some time now. Um, they have Buffon there um, as a kind of sharing the, the the starting position at present, but Buffon is in the the final years of his career. So uh, if they were to be um, offered the opportunity to sign De Gea this summer um, for a transfer fee or in a year and a half time when um, when his, when all his contracts run down, when that extension runs down, they would be interested. Well, moving on from uh, transfer news on to Manchester United and Jose Mourinho. It was widely reported last week that Mourinho would be sacked regardless of the result against Newcastle. Ian, you described it on Twitter as a public execution, but there was a pardon and a reprieve, as you later said. Uh, why, why is Jose not being sacked? Um, I think for the reason which... Um... I've said often on the on this uh, the transfer window, Johnny, which is that in order to sack an elite manager or any manager for that matter of fact, you have to have someone that you know is going to come in and do the job. And as we discussed last week on the transfer window podcast, we broke the news that Zidane uh, was not interested in coming to Manchester United to replace Mourinho at this particular moment in time. That uh, was then confirmed by the the um, former Real Madrid manager's agent in the Spanish press in Marca uh, last weekend, where he said that he, at this moment, did not envisage his client managing in the EPL. And I think if you look at the candidates out there to replace Mourinho, and I'm sure we were going to do that in the uh, legendary quickfire round later in the podcast, then there really isn't anyone out there who, who suggests that they can do a better job. And, um, like, I've got a lot of sympathy uh, and empathy with my colleagues in the press with regards to when you report stories, um, you take it on trust that your source is telling you the truth. Um, unfortunately, um, as you know, I think every journalist has discovered, that the only three people or the only three parties who matter in any given um, sacking or signing are the person, um, and that in this case Mourinho, uh, whether or not he himself wants to leave or quit or whatever, whether the club wants to sack him, and whether or not there's an option for him elsewhere to do something else. And in this case, I think all three were a no um, at this particular point in time. And as I said, Manchester United cannot, and this is you know a, a very salient point, um, Edward, as we know, is someone who needs and wants and prioritises the Glazers' investment in the club. Now, if Manchester United sacked Jose Mourinho without having a plan, then the stock price plummets and he is scrutinised for the fact that, first of all, he gave Mourinho a new contract in 2020 just last season. Secondly, that he's a person who presided over the transfer window chaos uh, in the summer where Mourinho wanted to bring in certain players and it was decided that he was effectively banned from doing so. So there's definitely um, motives, if you like, in the boardroom um, with regards to what they do and how they do it. But there's also, you've got to say, um, you know, and, and these things do happen in football because it's a very serendipitous kind of uh, sport. Uh, and that is the way that the players played against Newcastle United in the second half 
specifically um, last weekend, the way that um, they came back, the spirit they showed was classic Manchester United. It was even in the ironic words of Paul Pogba, attack, attack, attack. And United could have scored six, seven goals, actually, in that game when you look at the um, chance that Marcus Rashford in particular missed and then the one that uh, Nemanja Matic also squandered. So, again, I I think there's two factors um, which are operating here which are significant. One is the fact that uh, there is no ready-made successor to Mourinho. And the second is that um, uh, Woodward himself is... um, foundationally a conservative person. He does not seek change or um, want to, if you like, revolutionise anything when it appears to be going well and in his favour. And in this case, United uh, continue to make a lot of money. Uh, The Glazers are happy uh, in terms of the corporate thing and everything else. And they will allow Mourinho to continue in his job as long as results dictate that they're not going to be disadvantaged by his managership. And you have to say that the evidence, at least of 45, 49 minutes um, last weekend, suggested that there is something still there between Mourinho and his players which can conjure up results uh, against the, the, the run of play and against, if you like, what seemed like destiny when uh, Newcastle United went 2-0 up. So, but this is the Mourinho thing. You know, he, this is what he's done all his career. He, he changes tactics. He changes um, players and substitutions. Um, putting Paul Pogba at the centre of a defensive three for around 16, 17 minutes and allowing him to defer possession and play possession to other players, I think was something magical um, and something that many other coaches are not capable of doing. And I think we saw in Mourinho something of the kind of, you know, I hate using the cliche, but the special one status that he has and has declared and has proven on many, many uh, different occasions and at different clubs. Uh, He can turn things around. Okay, it wasn't against the best opposition, but the bottom line is he did do it at crisis time, a very, very crucial moment in his own career as well. And I think that's why uh, we see Mourinho still in a job and I suspect we'll see him still in a job for many weeks to come. Um, Again, circumstances, results pending, but I think there's a turning point for Mourinho at Manchester United. I think um, think it's very clear that Manchester United were being bounced into sacking Jose Mourinho. Um, I think the reason, I think think Jose Mourinho was justified in using the term um, he used in that that post-match media um, conference where he said, where he talked about a manhunt I mean, I've been covering football for almost two decades now, and I've never seen this level of sustained um, criticism of one individual. Um, Some of it justified, but a lot of it not justified. A lot of it um, clearly um, coming from people who do not like Jose Mourinho as an individual and would like to see him sacked. Um, and And it has been almost relentless upon him. Um, So when you've got that on the outside and the situations that that Ian describes, you know, which is that if Woodward were to sack Mourinho, I think he's aware that the the criticism, and we've already seen Manchester United supporters flying a banner over the ground um, saying Ed Woodward a specialist in failure. He realises if he sacks him, that a level of external attack on the manager, him being the, the, the focal point of criticism, is likely to move to him and his employers, the Glazers. So should he make that change, and certainly there is a consideration within Manchester United's board to make that change, he has to get it right. There's no, you know, there's no half measures this time. Um, he has to get the right man in. He has to have a man in who will turn results around and turn the style of play around because that's part of the, the great external criticism of, of Mourinho and Manchester United at the moment. And interestingly, um, you know, it was, it was reported on, on Saturday that there was a meeting between Jose Mourinho's agent, George Mendes, and, and Edward Wood on Friday. Um, that was um, discussed in, in that meeting. So the, the message that, that came across was that Manchester United did not want to um, sack Mourinho at this stage. 
um, that the, the noise was coming from outside rather than from inside. They still believed in him. They still felt he had been successful in his first season and successful in his second season. Um, and we're not looking to sack him. It was, there was, um, there is this, it's, made, it's been made clear to Mourinho that results have to change, but it wasn't a dismissal point. It wasn't a, a fracture point. It would have been interesting to see what happened had that 2-0 deficit got worse or ended at 2-0 at Newcastle because, you know, we are talking about results here and were they to have lost to a team that was in the relegation zone and, and uh, had struggled throughout the season in that fashion, then certainly it would have made life much harder for Mourinho. And I think that's it, the response it drew from him was telling. And, and I agree with, with Ian's analysis and that you, you saw a guy completely focused on using all of his skills to turn that situation around and ensure that he wasn't beaten and ideally that they won that match, um, making the early substitution, making another change at halftime, um, making what... So I, I was talking to some people to ask them um, yeah. whether United had trained that uh, formational change a lot, I practiced it in training, and I was told that, no, actually it's quite straightforward, even though it looked complex and it just involved removing a centre-back to get a, another player forward in the, the midfield. So Fellaini put him in be, behind the three-man attack, push your full-backs all the way up and then bring one of your um, central midfielders back in front of the defence with the idea being that Newcastle are going to sit very deep. You allow Pogba um, to sit further up, further back the pitch with less pressure on him. So you give him time to pick the passes and he, he's arguably the best long passer in the Premier League at present. So if you give Pogba that space from depth to pick out the extra man you've added to the attack, Fellaini, so you've overloaded the opposition defence and there, there should be a, a, a space, um, a free player to, to target, uh, be it with a long pass or, or um, working through the lines, then you will create more chances. Um, and it worked. And, and we should also um, put one um, reported myth to bed here. I mean, you might have seen that um, it reported that Paul Pogba was responsible for, for that tactical change. And it was his idea um, that he play further back, which um, seems a bit strange in itself, given he's a guy who always wants to play further forward, and that Fellaini come on and play behind the attackers. I, I put that um, to... Uh, the people involved, and I was told that it was absolute rubbish and big lies. Um, so the, those tactical changes, which are ones that we've seen Mourinho use in the past um, at several of his clubs, were instigated by him. Um, they were, he made the decision, he changed the system, and he got the players playing. And, and I think one other notable thing in that, that turnaround was there was a lot of discussion about whether the players had stopped playing for him. And I think um, a lot of discussion after the first half that it looked exactly like that. And I think watching it myself, I was wondering that. But when it came down to it, the best goal they scored and the key goal they scored was scored by a combination of Anthony Martial and Paul Pogba. Um, a superb passing combination and finish. And if you were to pick two players who were most likely to down tools and, and think, oh, here's our opportunity to get rid of the manager, it would have been those two. And they didn't take that opportunity, so all credit to them. Um, and it, it maybe gives you a different perspective on where Manchester United are and whether, and whether they, can, they, they can turn their bad seat start to the season around. One of the best one-twos I think I've ever seen, Duncan, that between Sanchez and Pogba. Um, Pogba's back heel flick back into Sanchez's path to, uh, sorry, Martial's path, I should say, um, to score the second goal was just incredible. A lovely, lovely goal. And I agree with you that um, given that those were two players who had been specifically picked out as people who were um, Mourinho uh, antagonists or indeed anti-Mourinho is significant for Manchester United going forward um, and, and it's correct and it, it is correct you know we, we, we can't you can't sugarcoat it there's serious problems between Pogba and Mourinho and there's serious problems between Martial and Mourinho so um, there's no doubt that that uh, they're unhappy with the manager have been unhappy with the manager yet 
they they performed in that situation. And I agree, exceptional goal, one of the best goals. So, 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 something I'd say as well, though, is from my knowledge of you know working with players and and coaches etc et over the, the the course of uh, many years, is that um, there's no better remedy for any division or any rift in a dressing room than than that kind of win in those kinds of circumstances and you saw the way the players celebrated the winning goal and indeed the equalising goal and they looked to me like a team who was not divided, who who cared for each other, who cared about the club, who, cared, who were, were fighting for the shirt as well and having spoken to a couple of people involved with the, the higher up administration at Manchester United since the result on Saturday evening, that has been noted um, very much and I think therefore what we're looking at is uh, after this international break a period of if you like um, atonement for Jose Mourinho where he will be absolutely given the opportunity to show what he showed uh, on uh, Saturday evening against Newcastle in terms of his coaching brilliance and experience and that is to turn this round for Manchester United I don't think there is um, any plan whatsoever to sack him in the near future. Uh, obviously, results will dictate and we always have to place that caveat into any conversation like this. But I think the fact is that there is a, a new belief, if you like, uh, and certainly a strengthening of belief that Mourinho is the right person to be in charge. When, when, you, win, when, when you win games that way, it's galvanising. It's galvanising for the players, it's galvanising for the manager, it's galvanising for the sport, it's galvanising for the board. You know, you, there's no better high than turning around a big deficit uh, and winning it um, in, in spectacular style. And that's, you know, that was, I think I, I, what I said on Twitter after the game was if that if that's proves to be Jose Mourinho's last match as a, a Manchester United manager, then he did it in a style like Sir Alex Ferguson. And I think it also shows what the players are capable of when they play more aggressively. So you've got this, and, and we saw it ironically against Tottenham. Um, it's probably the most aggressively set the team out this season. And they were very unfortunate and they didn't score in the first half where they, they dominated uh, the game, controlled the game, created lots of good chances, and then went on and lost 3-0. So... I think Mourinho knows what the team's capable of if he, if he plays attacking football. The problem is the worry about the defence. Because if you, if you play that way um, with the defenders he has, you're going to get caught out in the way they did against Tottenham part of the time. So you can go two ways with that. You can say, I'm going to play attacking football and I'm going to take the nasty losses and get more um, exciting wins and see how, um, see how my critics and see how their support support respond to that or you can say again and you can push the line I need a better central defender if you give me better central defenders we can play more aggressively I don't have to cover up um, the defence with my midfield and with uh, with the tactical setup using getting wingers to to drop back and mark as much as I have been doing so it's it's all, all of it feeds into this um, dynamic of what's going on at Manchester United and, and how they can solve the problems um, with the current uh, managerial structure they have. The other big game from the weekend was, of course, Liverpool versus Manchester City. And uh, what we saw was Pep Guardiola demonstrating a tactical flexibility that we've perhaps criticised him for not having in the past. Duncan, were you impressed by their performance? I was. Um... It wasn't the uh, the great show of uh, attacking football that we'd been promised by uh, all the pundits uh, beforehand. Um, it was actually quite a... I wouldn't say it was a dull game. I think tactically it was very interesting, but it didn't have the the you know the, the thrills and spills that uh, that we've had of the from the last four um, meetings uh, between the two clubs. I think um, Guardiola did. You know, he, even though he went into the press conference pre-match saying he wasn't going to defend and he wasn't going to play in a boring way, he did defend. He played uh, not to get beaten. He did it in a very intelligent fashion. He did it in his fashion. And it was, um, what are we best at? We are best at uh, controlling the ball. And he, and he interestingly instructed his defenders when under pressure from the Liverpool players or when, when 
there was a chance they were going to press and take them on the blind side. He warned them that the, they often um, come in on the blind side of defenders and, and steal the ball. Go backwards, pass it back to, uh, pass it back. If you're a midfielder, pass it back to a defender. If you're a defender, pass it back to Ederson. If you're the defender and you got it in the, in the right back position and the goalkeeper's open, pass it across the box. And they spent a large part of the game after they'd weathered the initial storm from Liverpool, and it was only probably 15 minutes in which Liverpool looked seriously threatening in that game, um, they spent a large part of the game doing that. And um, yeah, it's very sensible, it's very intelligent, it's good management. It, it's probably a really bad sign for the Premier League that Guardiola has finally dumped that stubborn view that there's only one way I'm going to play football, and it's got to be beautiful, and it's got to be... Uh, directed towards the opposition goal, if he's now ready to say in matches like that where his team are susceptible to, to the counter-attack, um, play uh, tiki-taka, uh, you know, keep, keep possession, prioritise possession of the ball as a way of, of preventing the team, uh, the opposition from having chances, then he's going to win more games and avoid defeat in more games in the Premier League and also, I think, have a much better chance in the Champions League. So it's a bad sign for his opponents. Um, I think there was a, you've got to say it will be interesting if Guardiola gets another game like he had against Southampton last season, um, where Southampton played uh, a very defensive style and he came out and um, verbally attacked one of the Southampton players and told him he should be attacking and should be playing football. Um, you know, that, that kind of... Um, moralistic view that everyone should play the game in an open, um, entertaining way. It can't be sustained now if he if he's prepared to play in a defensive, uh, cautious way with the quality of players he had. And let's face it, he had bet Manchester City had better players than Liverpool. If he's prepared to do that, he better not go about uh, with that criticism of um, teams like Huddersfield and, and Southampton when they decide that they, they're going to set up defensively against Manchester City because that's the best tactic for um, for them. But all credit to Guardiola and unfortunate not to get a win in the end. It did make me wonder, Duncan, that um, Pep's pragmatism newly found, uh, as some people seem to think, had been inspired by the fact that um, there was no incidents on the way to the game and therefore parking the bus was quite easy because uh, the, the sensors were still in place, uh, hadn't been destroyed. But um, I take your point um, that it was an unusual um, exhibition of football for Manchester City in terms of where they normally play. I think it's important to contextualise, however, that this was you know game eight of a 38-game season and that um, as a result, neither team wanted to lose um, because it would have... I think, upset their momentum thus far um, in the competition. But probably more importantly, it was one of those um, situations whereby um, a point each was, no one's going to question it. They're going to say, that well, that was okay because, you know, nothing's crucial at this moment in time. And I think managers, in my experience anyway, uh, generally, will be will play safe at such an embryonic part of the competition uh, in order to maintain uh, whether it be unbeaten records or momentum or whatever, especially going into a two-week hiatus, which is the international break. The last thing you want to do is be on the you know wrong end of a, a tanking by one of your main rivals. And so I think the draw suited um, both City and Liverpool in this sense. I think that, that Guardiola was sensible in the way that he set his team up uh, and also that Liverpool probably didn't play to their potential. But then again, there's another side to that, and that is that they're effectively, based on last season's statistics, misfiring up front uh, in terms of goals scored and chances created, which has not helped them in terms of the confidence throughout the team. But what has um, been effective for them is that they, you know, they've not lost games that they should have won. So... Um, it's, 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 it's a tricky situation to try and um, predict, if you like, in terms of when the Premier League returns in, in you know, 10, 12 days' time. Uh, they go into a period of intense competition because the top 
four combined Champions League with Premier League games. I've got a Manchester Derby, obviously. We've also got other important games which will help to decide um, placings. But what I think is positive for the Premier League, um, as opposed to negative in the way that Duncan has um, articulated, is that you've got three teams sharing um, the lead on 20 points uh, through goal difference and two other big teams only two or three points behind. Whereas, you know, in the last two or three seasons, even by this point, we've seen a lead established by the dominant side in, in the competition. So it's not a bad thing, I don't think, in terms of spectator viewing. It's not a bad thing in terms of what the fans want to see. It's not a bad thing in terms of the Premier League renegotiating the television contract and uh, all the myriad of um, possibilities uh, based on a new streaming uh, companies being involved in that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What it is is, uh, I think, hopefully, a more level playing field with regards to, you know, where clubs, where teams, where players will um, compete against each other, and therefore we won't have the same runaway scenario that we had last season, where Manchester United, second best team in England, finished nineteen points behind Manchester City. So. I think from all those points of view, I think there is there are positives to be had. But at the same time, we have to contextualise. As I said, eight games in, um, we're, we're, no one's looking to predict the Premier League outcome at this moment in time. Uh, and, and we shouldn't be because we have, I think, effectively uh, and hopefully a much more competitive environment than, we, than we've had, uh, certainly last season. Duncan, Liverpool just aren't firing. Mo Salah in particular just hasn't been at the races so far this season. What do you put that down to? I think all of the forwards um, are off their uh, usual um, uh, chance conversion rates this season. Um, I think Salah, it looks to me like Salah's regressing to the mean. I think he's. I think the idea that he was a player on the on the same level as Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi was absurd. Um, and I I see a player who's who's had a, a a tough time with his national team, a tough time in the Champions League final. Um, you know he's he's kind of a, a, been at war with his national team over sponsorship. Um, you know making making demands about bodyguards in the room and in his room when he goes on, on national team duty and not having to do sponsor response uh, work that uh, contradicts the, his own private sponsorship. All these things aren't great for a for a man who's you know ad, been adulated and, and still is and is in his own country. Um, and from what I hear about Mo Salah, um, he's not mentally the strongest of individuals. You know, he, he's um, obviously had that problem at Chelsea and was brought in as a, as a guy they expected to be a real talent and could turn into um, a, a, an important player for them. And he wasn't up to that challenge. And I think there was always a question last season when he got on this spectacular run of form is what happens if he just falls off that wave of confidence a bit. And I think, I think that's what we're seeing at the moment. And the interesting part will be how far back up the wave of confidence and how f- close to... Um, the numbers he he provided last season will he be able to reproduce again? So I think I think that's an issue for them. But I think also um, you've got to note that as Ian said, a draw was wasn't a bad result for Jurgen Klopp. He remained top of the league. Um, he remained unbeaten in the Premier League. Um, he uh, didn't lose after. Uh, a very poor performance um, in Napoli, a Champions League defeat after being knocked out of the, the League Cup, which is another opportunity to finally win a, a trophy as Liverpool manager uh, disappeared for him. And, you know, they set up more conservatively. They played Joe Gomez instead of Alexander-Arnold at right back. Um, they they had that initial burst of, of um, counter-pressing to try and get a goal, but once Manchester City bedded into their system, they didn't really offer a great deal. And the Napoli game was telling. I mean, they clearly went to Napoli uh, to try and get a draw um, and almost got it. Um, but if they had got it, it would have been very fortunate. Looking at the, the expected goals numbers for the last two games, um, they, were, they were at 0.43 for the Manchester City match, which is um, very low for Liverpool. The Napoli game, they were at 0.1 which is just about the lowest number I've ever seen for expected goals in a game. So they're, you know, they're, they're off that form. And 
They're maybe not as good as uh, a lot of people report them as being. And you know, the idea that Jurgen Klopp is this this manager who will go and attack in all circumstances and always play for the beauty of the game has clearly been disproved by the way he set up in, in Napoli. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how he how he sets up in games going forward in this season. Okay, guys, well, it's now time for our legendary quickfire round. Um, today, we're going to talk about the potential replacements for Jose Mourinho and whether or not they are Fergie or Lurgy. <laughs> <laughs> or Lurgy, in Duncan's case. Or, yeah. <laughs> uh, Dundee United Director of Football there, for anyone that's wondering who the hell Luggy is. Now, we're going to start, Ian. Zinedine Zidane, the most obvious one. Well, I, uh, you know, I take no um, pleasure in saying that um, Zidane's agent confirmed what we said in the podcast last week, Johnny, which was that he is um, reticent about working um, at Manchester United in the current uh, situation. He is someone who resigned from Real Madrid last summer after Champions League win because he wanted to take a year sabbatical and take time out because he feared burnout in his own point. And I say no joy on the basis that only that um, he is the only, I think, and potentially credible candidate to replace Mourinho in the short term. Um, and therefore, I, I do believe that he is taking himself out of um, the... Uh, scenario whereby he would be willing to come in at this moment in time to Old Trafford and take on what is, you know, a massive turnaround job. I think he himself um, would recognise and respect that Jose Mourinho is probably still the best person to do that. So in that case, I would say he's Lurgy and not Fergie. Duncan, Carlo Ancelotti. Okay, I'll just explain here. I'm going to swap Fergie for Luggy because Luggy is a nickname for for Paul Sturrock, who was my favourite player uh, as a as a child growing up, um, had the delight of watching him in his peak years. And it's also the name of my dog. So uh, Luggy is even better than Fergie in, in my reckoning. So I'll do a, a Luggy or Lurgy analysis. Carlo Ancelotti um, could be Luggy, could be. Um, I think he, uh, he wants to manage in, in England again. He has um, the credentials of being a, a winner in the Premier League. He has the credentials in terms of being um, a pacifying uh, presence. He's a very um, diplomatic um, and smart person with the media and I think with, with the players as well. Um, so he ticks a lot of boxes if you, if you did have to change manager at Manchester United. The problem with Ancelotti is that he's not available at the moment. There's another and big problem with Ancelotti. Ian, I'll let you tell him. Which is? Na Napoli. <laughs> of course, yes. How do you get out of Napoli without um, dying? I'll play a bit of a <laughs> Godfather music over that. <laughs> well, that, that, that's, that's what I was going to explain. That um, He is uh, De Laurentiis' uh, favourite son at the moment. Uh, the owner of Napoli went out of his way to hire him, convinced him to come back when to Italy when he was looking for a job in England, allowed him to employ, I think, two of his, uh, of his uh, children uh, in the, on the Napoli staff um, and is extremely happy with them at the moment. And as long as that continues, you don't get out of Napoli um, in those circumstances. So, it's, a family, it's a family club, Duncan. <laughs> you said it. You said it. Um, so maybe... Were Mourinho to um, look at being out of a job in the summer, were he not to be able to solve the problems with it, and Manchester United decide to make a change, um, and things hadn't gone well for Carlo at Napoli, then I would say a uh, possibility. But at present, um, while he is a luggy, he's not a luggy that's on the market. Ian, Diego Simeone. Okay, so Simeone very much um, on the radar of many Premier League clubs over the past two to three seasons. Um, CV just improves and improves at Atletico Madrid. Uh, someone who's expressed uh, publicly his um, 
admiration from the Premier League. Therefore, we have to um, surmise that he would like to manage here someday. However, um, if Manchester United are looking for a difference or a change in personality of the person who coaches the football team, and by that I mean someone who's not confrontational towards both the board or the press or whatever, then Simeon is not your man. Um, he will uh, say as he finds, say as he, as he thinks as well. And therefore, in Manchester United's sort of uh, the higher interest, which, you know, is the um, administrative level, at the club, which clearly is a massive influence on who they select, both in key positions managerial, but also um, with regards to who they um, sign as well. Simeone is similar to Mourinho, both in personality, but also in terms of his belief that he should manage every single part of the football club, the minutiae, in terms of signing players, where the players stay when they um are on away matches, the travel arrangements, the meals that they eat, etc., etc. He's a micromanager, and I see Simeone and Manchester United as a good fit if you're going back to the Fergie days. And obviously, he's one of our <clears throat> uh, reasons that we're talking Fergie or Lurgy. But um, as I've said before on the podcast, the Glazers want more influence in the football department. They want um, more influence in the club. And I see Simeone as someone who would be recalcitrant to that. And therefore, I'd say in this moment in time, he'd be a luggy rather than a Fergie. Duncan, Massimiliano Allegri. Um, Again, uh, I think a strong candidate uh, for what Manchester United would need if they were to change his manager. Um, Someone who has... Um, talking to players who worked with him, uh, a lot of respect for his uh, tactical abilities and also for his uh, man management abilities. Um, another man who wants to, to coach in England um, and has been preparing himself uh, to coach in th- England. I think you, you, you just seen at the end of last season, he gave a, an interview with um, Jason Burt in Telegraph, which was very much a, a, an advertorial for his, uh, his, his managerial abilities at a time when his, his future at Juventus was in doubt because he was pushing the club uh, to um, go the extra mile in terms of recruitment um, to give themselves a proper chance of winning the Champions League. And, and, and that's, that's the problem for Manchester United. Juventus did exactly what Allegri wanted. Um, they allowed him to get rid of several players he didn't want to be there, and they went and bought... Uh, not only Cristiano Ronaldo, best player in the world, they bought a lot of. They spent more than any other club in the uh, on transfer fees in the, in the, the summer window. So that shows their commitment. They've also just moved uh, Marotta out of the the chief executive position. Again, someone that Allegri didn't particularly get on with. So um, he has uh, as much control as he will ever have at Juventus. He has one of the best squads in. European football. He has the best player in European football on his books. He has an almost uh, guaranteed um, fifth consecutive Serie A title so he can focus his efforts on winning the Champions League, which he wants to do. So why on earth would that man want to leave that situation um, for Manchester United at present? And uh, what I, what, from what I hear about Allegri, he's also a very principled man. So he Having asked for that from Juventus and got what he asked for, he's not going to walk out um, for another job. So um, he's a luggy, but out of the out of Manchester United's reach. Ian Brendan Rodgers, tough one, this Johnny. Um, someone who uh, Manchester United have considered in the past um, when David Moyes was uh, on the verge of being sacked. Uh, Brendan Rodgers was someone they considered. I think the biggest difficulty for the club, not for the man himself, would be um, having managed Liverpool. Um, Would he be able to cross that divide and satisfy Manchester United fans that he is the man to lead them to a 
their next league title, having obviously um, not been able to do that at Liverpool. So I'm not saying he's the wrong person <clears throat> at this moment in time. Should results dictate man, uh, that Mourinho would be removed, I think he would be um, a, a good option. But I don't think that the Manchester United faithful support would forgive him his ties with Liverpool. Um, I think there is a very strong bond between Manchester United fans and, and Celtic as a club, uh, which we've seen over the years in terms of uh, testimonials, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, Celtic have a bond with every club, mate. Well, they're that kind of club, to be fair, Johnny. You know, they are not the people. <laughs> they are, they're everyone's person. So, um, so yeah. I, I, I look. I, I doubt it. I doubt that there would be a, a realistic appointment at this moment in time for Brendan Rodgers. But Brendan Rodgers is, is a relatively young head coach, stroke manager, who's got a lot of years ahead of him. Um, he's been mentioned for the Aston Villa job, which I don't believe he's first choice for um, the owners uh, at Villa Park. But uh, at this moment, I'd say he was a, a luggy rather than a Fergie for United. But um, you know, ask me in five years' time when the podcast obviously will be broadcasting to um, uh, our world domination, and um, we'll see where he is then. Brendan Rogers for the Manchester United support isn't just the Largy; he's the dreaded Largy. <laughs> <laughs> is that? Hang on, is that is that your dog Luggy with a disease? Because <laughs> I wouldn't want to wish that on anyone. Never mind the dog. I'll let you round out your Italian triumvirate with Antonio Conte. Yeah, I think Conte is uh, definitely lurgy in this discussion. Um, I think uh, he is the the highest profile, um, uh, most accomplished manager who's actually on the market at present um, and would be interested in the job. Um, I think there's no doubt that were Manchester United to make contact with Antonio Conte, he would he would consider that seriously. I think the only um, reservation he would have is that if he took the job mid-season, it would mean letting off Roman Abramovich and Marina Granovskaya and Chelsea with um, paying him the full compensation package for uh, his time at Chelsea. Um, and he wants to extract every single last penny from them, if at all possible, and is prepared um, to uh, to run his sabbatical to the end of the year. Um, uh, that's his. That's his plan. But I think if Manchester United were to come in, he would take that seriously. But ask yourself, if you're looking for a manager who um, is going to have a better relationship with the players, is um, going to be less confrontational uh, with the board over transfers, um, is going to play the United way. Um, why would you be wanting to appoint Antonio Conte? I mean, this is a man who um, set his team up at Chelsea playing 5-4-1 defence um, and uh, a very exciting counter-attack, uh, but extremely defensive, um, uh, negative in many ways um, in the way they set up. So no, you know, actually um, more defensive and, and more counter-attacking than, than a Mourinho team and, um, and, and, picks, and picks fights everywhere. And, and, and um, you only have to look at the number of Chelsea players who have come out on record talking about how happy they are that Antonio Conte's no longer at the club um, and they have a different style of manager and a different style of training. Um, to see that uh, putting Conte into that situation would be a recipe for chaos. So, Johnny, what, just very quickly, quick fire, extra time round. Super size Sam. We have to give him a mention. He's a man who's always on call. He's the Red Adair of the Premier League. And in this case, Red Adair has more pertinence for the Red Devils. If they do um, suffer defeats under Jose Mourinho in the coming weeks, then surely he's a man to rescue them from relegation difficulties. He is the man who lives close by in Bolton. He is a man-manager extraordinaire uh, and also someone who can obviously keep them up uh, in the Premier League and probably lead them to you know, Europa League glory in maybe seven years. So let's just uh, give them a mention. And from a commercial point of view, they can have a tie-in with someone like Ernst and Galliano Wine and sell it in pints. Pints, exactly. Or McDonald's. Super size Sam. <laughs> you, you stole my line, Johnny. I can't believe it. <laughs>
Didn't didn't they have a commercial partnership with um, Diablo or something? Uh, wine they do. I think they do have at least one official uh, wine global partner or whatever. With the, with yeah. the devil, with the devil, Diablo. Yes. So. Well, there you go. It's all made up. There you go. There you go, John. There's your headline. Okay, that's great. Fantastic. We're going to um, draw this transfer window to a close. Just a reminder, we are looking for a sponsor. So if you like the idea of partnering with one of the UK's best football podcasts and talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own transfer window account at Transfer Podcast. We're trying to build a community on that account, so everyone who follows will get a follow back. If you want to talk to us individually, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, and most importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SG. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, please give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. We'll be back next Tuesday at the usual time before 3pm. Until then, thanks for listening.